Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week I speak to Adrian Buller and Ben Braun. Adrian is a senior research fellow at Commonwealth and Ben is a political scientist at the Max Planck Institute for the Study of Societies. Together they recently wrote a paper for Commonwealth under new management, share ownership and the rise of UK asset manager capitalism. We discuss the rise of the big three asset managers, who really makes the big decisions in today's corporations, and whether workers can ever hope to use their power as shareholders to change capitalism. Thanks, as always, to our amazing patrons who make the show possible. If you want access to the full hour-long episode of the show, as well as full-length interviews with previous guests like Naomi Klein and Dr. Cornell West, then support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash aworldtowinpod. There's a link in the description. If you want to support the show in another way, please give us a rating on iTunes to keep us up in the charts and share your favourite episodes on social media, tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Another big thank you to Reverend and the Makers who've let us use their track Heavyweight Champion of the World as our intro and outro music. And now here is Adrian and Ben explaining exactly what the big asset managers actually do. Hello, Adrian and Ben, and thank you so much for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. How are you both doing today? Very good. Thank you, Grace. Nice to be on here. Good. Yeah, doing pretty well. Pretty well. I skipped the London floods, so feeling pretty lucky about that. Yeah, <laughs> to go to Canada, which is, yeah, as we've just been discussing, not that much better in terms of <laughs> <laughs> the terror of climate breakdown. But there we are. <laughs> so I'm with both of you today to discuss your new report out with Commonwealth under new management, share ownership, and the rise of UK asset manager capitalism. Now, this is a super interesting report. Um, I would really encourage people to go in and read it. It's very easy to read. Um, we'll put a link in the description. But because, you know, it's like, you know, there's some relatively technical stuff in there. Um, I just want to start by asking you a few basic questions for our listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with this kind of area on, on finance. Can you just tell us a bit about what asset management actually is? Yeah, so an asset manager basically does exactly what it says on the tin. So if you have assets, you can give them over to a company like BlackRock, which is the world's biggest asset manager, and they'll invest those assets on your behalf. So anyone among us who has a pension, or if you're in the UK, an ISA, which is sort of a savings account, and you are invested in stocks and shares, chances are you've got an asset manager doing that for you. So they're basically a financial intermediary that even though it's not their assets being invested, they're the entity that ultimately will buy and hold the shares in a company or hold a bond that's been issued by a corporation. So while they don't actually own assets themselves, they end up with the entitlement to voting at those companies, um, as well as the entitlement to make sort of investment allocation decisions in the economy. And secondly, and Ben, maybe you could take this one. Um, Can we talk a bit about the difference between passive and active management and why that's important for understanding the rise of what you guys have have called asset manager capitalism? Yes. So uh, that's a distinction that is at the fund level more than at the firm level, although there are distinctions also there that I'll get to in a minute. So there are investment funds that say invest in stocks and the fund manager, a person or a team, selects or picks individual stocks based on 
their views on how these stocks and, and, and the firms that have issued them will perform in the future. And so the sales pitch there is we are the better stock pickers compared to our competitors. And therefore, you should buy our fund because it will outperform the other funds uh, that are active in a similar segment of the market and maybe even the market as a whole. So there is a promise of outperformance uh, made by active fund managers. And in contrast, passive funds uh, or index tracking funds maybe is a better term. They just, just replicate an existing index, say the FTSE 100, for example, or an index of actually all emerging market economies, any index that you can imagine exists and is being tracked by at least one or usually uh, several funds. And so these funds do not promise outperformance. They just promise to replicate the performance of an existing index. And this can be done very cheaply. And uh, so the sales pitch here is you can invest in this index fund uh, at virtually no cost and Instead of part of your returns going to a highly paid active portfolio manager, you will reap all the benefits of whichever particular asset class or index you are investing in. So just to add to what Ben said there as well, you know, passive investing has been around um, since the 90s as a concept, but it didn't really take off um, to the level we've seen today until following the 2008 financial crash. So there's a combination of factors at play there. A lot of people saw these as kind of safer investments. So not trusting the kind of Wolf of Wall Street type investors with their assets, but instead just getting, you know, nice, steady, stable return. They're also really low cost, as Ben mentioned. So um, that's made them a lot more accessible to lots of groups. And it's now at the point where not only are all of the world's sort of largest investment houses primarily offering, if not exclusively offering passive funds. So that's groups like BlackRock and Vanguard. And that's the case sort of throughout the world increasingly. Um, But they also have just completely overtaken the kind of conventional investing strategies, so active investing um, that used to dominate. So in the US, I think it was a couple years ago now that passive funds um, took over active funds in terms of the amount of assets that were um, allocated to them. So it's kind of an increasingly dominant force, not only in the US, but also in other economies that are now following suit. So what exactly is asset manager capitalism as a corporate governance regime? And what has it replaced? All right, I'll, I'll try to be brief on that question. Uh, could, I could talk about it for, for a long time, of course. <laughs> but um, the idea of this concept is that what we see today in the, in the sphere of corporate governance is different from what we have come to know as shareholder primacy or shareholder value regime of corporate governance. And The two regimes are not completely different, but uh, there are very important differences. So they're not completely different in the sense that shareholders are still very much uh, empowered and in charge. And this contrasts with the uh, corporate governance regime of managerialism, which was what dominated in the US and in other countries um, in the post-war decades. With the rise of pension funds and other institutional investors, 
we saw in the 1980s, but especially in the 1990s and early 2000s, a regime uh, that was dominated by pension funds and um, shareholders had become more powerful relative to other stakeholders in corporate governance, namely workers. Shareholder primacy, in fact, is better understood as an alliance between corporate managers and shareholders against workers. And now the main difference with the uh, between share, the shareholder primacy regime and, and the asset manager capitalism regime is that asset managers are just much, much bigger than your average pension fund that dominated in the previous regime. And that means that um, the ownership concentration is actually much higher than it used to be. So even the biggest pension funds in the 1990s in the US, CalPERS, uh, for example, they n- never held more than 1% in any given uh, corporation. Today, uh, and, and they did so only for a few dozen uh, companies, the ones that they invested in and decided to make big investments in. This is very different from a BlackRock, Vanguard, or State Street. These uh, asset managers are so large that even though they are fully diversified because they are index tracking uh, funds mostly, they nevertheless hold stakes of six, seven, eight, in the US even nine or 10% uh, in any individual uh, company. And so that is a very different regime. The ownership concentration is much higher and the portfolio diversification of the dominant investors is much higher. And lastly, unlike pension funds, asset managers have a lower degree of economic interest in the performance of the underlying firms. Pension funds invest money for their ultimate beneficiaries, individual households, savers, and the returns from these investments just pass through to these ultimate beneficiaries. Asset managers operate a fee-based business model. To them, the returns are not so important, uh, the fees they can generate from managing their clients' assets are the thing they are trying to maximize. And uh, if that works best when returns are maximized, that's fine, but it is a very different uh, business model. And so that's another important feature of asset manager capitalism. Yeah. And just to add a little bit of sort of tangible context, if I can, This matters a lot because asset managers, as I had mentioned previously, now hold voting rights in basically the largest ones in pretty much every corporation and every geography, every industry, um, because they're what Ben calls universal investors. So you've got this small handful of vast but still relatively opaque uh, firms that have really significant voting stakes in the global economy. So our research that's in that report found that, you know, just BlackRock and Vanguard, who are both US-based investors, um, are now the dominant shareholders throughout the FTSE 350, which is an index of the 350 biggest UK corporations. And together, they hold an average, I think, of, you know, 10% of the total market capitalization of that index. And in the US, it's even more pronounced. So they've got 
together with State Street, which is the third largest, an average of 20% of a given S&P 500 companies. So that's all the big American corporates from Exxon to Facebook and Google and Amazon and all of those. And even though 10% or 20% might not sound like you know a huge number in the abstract, when it comes to voting on decisions that these corporations make, it's actually really significant because one, asset managers are required to vote according to the proxy voting laws in the US. And so they have to participate um, in these decisions. I think BlackRock cast something like 160,000 votes in 2020 at, I think, like 16,000 different annual general meetings to give you an idea of the extent of their influence. And a lot of the time, smaller investors as well aren't required to vote. So even though they may have formally 10 or 20 percent of control among BlackRock and Vanguard, it's actually much higher um, because a lot of people won't be voting. And so effectively, we've given them kind of veto power over a lot of the decisions made at every corporation that's you know relevant to our lives, whether it's the big vaccine manufacturers or it's the big tech companies or it's fossil fuels. And so, you know, they're calling the shots at a lot of these institutions. And so it really matters to how our economy is governed and in whose interest. I now want to talk a little bit about concentration within the asset management sector. So how has this sector become more concentrated over time? Um, And what has been driving that trend, which is basically, as you've just mentioned, favoured the big three over other institutions? So yeah, to understand basically their rise, we have to look back a bit to um, passive investing, which we've already talked about. So there were kind of a number of trends, whether it's the financial crisis or generally people looking for lower costs and more stable opportunities to invest their assets, which has basically meant that anyone who's offering a passive fund product had an advantage. And so there's been massive concentration away from conventional types of asset managers and towards BlackRock and Vanguard, State Street, and increasingly a lot of conventionally active asset managers are now starting to offer index tracking products because they simply have to um, to survive, partly because, you know, the active products are routinely underperforming passive funds anyways. You know, we like to think we're clever, but most people can't actually beat the market. So that has been one of the sort of major forces propelling this concentration within the industry itself. And there's sort of this gravitational pull insofar as, you know, when you've got the most assets, it tends to beget further assets. So the general trend is just towards further concentration. And as Ben had mentioned in the framework of asset manager capitalism, the largest asset managers, because they have significant stakes and they're universal, they don't particularly care about what they're doing with respect to the returns from a particular company. Their entire MO is to accumulate more assets. So yeah, their whole business model is based on undercutting other people. You've even seen groups like Fidelity, which is another largely passive offering uh, manager, offer funds with zero fees just to try and get market share because that's really all that matters to them. Um, And so definitely passive investing and the universal nature of shareholdings have been two major trends in driving this concentration because both of them make that sort of the fundamental imperative of investing rather than any other kind of beating the market or, or other imperatives like that. If I can just add one thing to this, it, it's that uh, index funds had actually been around for a long time, several decades, in fact, but 
never really took off. And that only accelerated with the emergence of exchange-traded funds, which offered an extra little bit of liquidity um, to investors in those funds in the early 2000s, and then especially after the global financial crisis, which accelerated the, the, the push out of banks and into products offered by asset managers. And that was also the moment just after the financial crisis in mid-2009 when BlackRock bought the asset management arm of Barclays, which included iShares, which is now the largest brand of such index tracking funds. I also want to talk about, as well as um, kind of concentration within the sector itself, the evidence that maybe kind of what's called common ownership by asset managers of multiple different firms within the same sector can create basically anti-competitive dynamics and collusive behavior, I suppose, in other markets. And there's a, 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 a well-known study that looks at this in the airline industry. What evidence is there that this is not only, we're not only seeing rising market concentration within the asset management sector, but also that this is driving kind of market power across the whole of society? When it comes to the political economy of asset manager capitalism, there are various, um, let's say, conflicts of interest that come to the fore when you look at the at the position of asset managers in the investment chain, where their business model pushes them relative to the in- interest of other stakeholders, especially, of course, their investors, their customers or clients, and vis-a-vis corporate managers. And and one of the most interesting of these conflicts of interest has been captured by this concept of common ownership and the potential anti-competitive effects of common ownership. That's the title of um, the most cited paper in this literature by Azara Schmaltz and uh, Teku. And um, the intuition is very simple. The idea is that if you have uh, an oligopolistic market structure, as is the case in, for example, U.S. banking or U.S. airlines. These are the industries that have been studied by these authors. And then uh, those five firms all have the same five, say, um, top shareholders that together own somewhere between 20 and 30 percent of all the voting shares. Then what does it do to the incentives of shareholders and especially corporate managers? And the idea is that, well, Unlike traditional shareholders that make a bet uh, that one of these banks or one of these airlines will outperform, these common owners, they have an interest in maximizing the profits of the sector as a whole. And what does that mean? That means there is an incentive for monopolistic pricing. So prices would tend to go up. Fewer flights uh, would be sold, um, but the profits... uh, would be maximized because each flight would cost more. And so there is an anti-competitive effect that arises from common ownership. And these authors have found quite a lot of empirical evidence for such an effect. And this debate is very highly contested. And among those contesting these findings are, of course, uh, these large asset managers. And it's worth just adding as well that in addition to that effect, is the influence that passive investing as a strategy sort of adds to that because 
people who are advocates of the importance of, you know, shareholder activism as a way to bring corporations in line um, are generally working within the framework of, you know, if you pressure a corporation to change its behavior and it doesn't, you have the opportunity to divest or exit from that company. And as index tracking investing um, continues to rise, because you are by definition tracking an externally determined index and you're not making the portfolio allocation decisions largely yourself, you end up without an exit option. So just by the very structure of an increasingly passive field, um, you basically don't have the same mechanisms for kind of punishment that defined the idea of shareholder engagement. And so in addition to the sort of anti-competitive trend, there's really very little room for asset managers as well to sort of punish any kind of anti-competitive or otherwise um, negative behavior. And, you know, they're also just not structurally incentivized to do so. And what impact uh, is, uh, well, are all of these trends that we've just been discussing under the heading of kind of asset management capitalism likely to have on macroeconomic variables like wages, investment, prices, etc.? All right, that's a tricky one. So one implication of, of this common ownership logic could be a downward pressure on investment, basically. Because if you don't need to compete very hard with your immediate competitors, then uh, your incentive to out-innovate and thereby out-invest them is also lower. So that would be one channel through which uh, um, this configuration has been linked to lower investment and therefore the trend of, of secular stagnation. The other big variable, uh, and you mentioned it, or wage developments, of course, and uh, and there one thing that I like to point out for the U- U.S., but that we also point out for the U.K. is that one needs to ask who, in whose interest, are these asset managers voting their shares? And while it is true that hundreds of thousands and even millions uh, of investors are somehow the in- the investors behind these funds, share ownership is extremely unequally distributed, both in the US and the UK, but also in most other countries. And a simple way of putting it as a rule of thumb, the bottom 50% of the wealth distribution don't hold any shares whatsoever. And so to the extent that the question is wages, yeah, you, you can imagine asset managers voting in favor of wage dumping because that increases the profits for shareholders and the consequences for the bottom 50% who would suffer from that, uh, that doesn't concern them because they are not among the shareholders. And... There was a paper quite a few years ago now, or a speech by Andy Haldane talking about, you know, the rising power of big asset managers, the speech, the age of asset management. And it's kind of widely considered that this is something that doesn't pose too many risks to financial stability because, you know, these institutions aren't using too much leverage. They don't pose the same risks, I suppose, um, that would require a lot of regulation as you might have for oligopolistic banks. But are there any risks to financial stability? And if so, um, how would they manifest themselves? Yeah, so there's been some really interesting 
work on this um, actually from the Federal Reserve Banks in the US of all places. Um, but there are early results suggesting that one of the big things is that the concentration combines with the primacy of kind of index tracking investing basically makes things amplify existing market volatility. So if there is a swing because some kind of abrupt event happens, let's say a pandemic, um, then the both the combination of the concentration and of passive investing tends to amplify those swings. And that can create serious financial stress, whether that's everyone, you know, pulling or attempting to pull all their money out of investments, sending sort of share prices plummeting and all those kinds of effects. So there are definite risks of financial stability. But I think the contrast with the idea of the too big to fail banks is a really interesting one because while, as you mentioned, you know, asset managers don't have balance sheet risk in the same way that banks do because ultimately, you know, these aren't their assets and they're not holding things themselves. They have become sort of too big to fail in a different sense insofar as because they are so vast and they have such influence over the fates of asset owners who are, you know, an increasingly prioritized cohort in our economy, anything that would sort of negatively impact their interests, them being the asset managers, is also increasingly related on a really large scale to you know the entire cohort of asset owners because the vast majority of people will have assets with a BlackRock or with a Vanguard. And so any kind of shock or threat of a shock is, I mean, this is speculative in my mind, but as I think there's almost an effectively guaranteed backstop that those interests will be protected. And you saw this, you know, whether it's with quantitative easing following 2008 crash and, you know, all the way up until now, or much more saliently, the response of central banks throughout the world to the pandemic and the sort of brief market crash that happened there, which was, you know, to buy up all sorts of financial assets and to keep asset prices afloat, which is good for both, um, the you know people who own those assets, um, which, as Ben mentioned, is um, a very very unequally divided group of people. But it's also good for you know the asset managers themselves because it keeps their business model afloat, which is fees based on the value of the total assets that they've got under management. And so I think there is a sense that these entities will be protected from future shocks, and they're aware of that. And I think that doesn't necessarily beget the most sage behavior from them. So whether it's on something like the climate crisis, I think is a really good example. You know, in theory, a group like a BlackRock or a Vanguard who are significant owners in every region, every industry throughout the whole economy and who are largely passive. So they're going to be holding those investments for the foreseeable future, you know, as long as they're in that index, as long as Amazon is, you know, a big company, they'll invest in it. Because of that combination of factors, they should, in theory, be keenly attuned to risks like climate shocks because that would invariably be bad <laughs> for their business model and for their interests. But that hasn't yet really been borne out by their behavior. So if you look at their records on voting on things like 
climate resolutions at shareholder AGMs or on, you know, deforestation in the supply chain or on, you know, exorbitant executive remuneration packages, which isn't good for sort of stability within um, labor. All of these things, they tend to just overwhelmingly vote in favor with corporate management. I think BlackRock voted against corporate management 9% of the time in 2020. And it was a really big deal. You know, it was really flashy news story whenever they did. And so I think that surprising contrast between what in theory should be a keen interest for them, which is trying to reduce, you know, the risk of major climate shocks or environmental collapse, you know, all of which would be bad for BlackRock. And the fact that they aren't actually yet acting to do so in a way that reflects the scale of the risk to me suggests that there is this, yeah, there's this implicit understanding that their interests in financial stability will be protected to whatever extent it can be by groups like the Federal Reserve or or the Bank of England and other central banks. Like more generally, there's an argument here that suggests that the big asset managers don't just have an interest in promoting financial stability or, you know, preventing climate breakdown, but actually that they've kind of become, as universal owners, they've become kind of guardians or stewards for capital as a whole. And so have this incentive to promote sustainable capitalism. And actually this move from kind of short-termist shareholder value maximization towards a, a more almost like a, a kind of corporatist model, certainly a model that you'd find more in societies governed less by, say, financial markets and more by kind of closer bank-based relationships. And therefore, that we're going to see a move towards a more longer term, more sustainable form of capitalism. What do you guys think of this argument? Um, yeah, I have some thoughts on this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think it's one of those arguments that you know, when you lay it out in theory does make a lot of sense. You know, these are massive entities who just, you know, by definition are interested in long-term aggregate market stable growth. So they're not trying to undercut any company to, you know, maximize the profits of a different one. They're just interested in aggregate growth. And in theory, that could be a good thing for, stability and for ensuring that the collapse of global ecosystems doesn't undermine profits. I don't know. But it, in practice, hasn't really been borne out, at least to the extent that it should be in order to kind of prevent those things from happening. So they've basically got this structure that makes proper effective stewardship kind of impossible, which is why you see the rise of things like ESG. So that stands for environmental social governance. And what that is, is basically a framework where they can collapse all of these, you know, extremely diverse votes and issues and data points and things they have to think about into kind of tidy categories of, you know, this fund will invest in companies that do well on the rubric of different kinds of criteria related to the environment. And therefore, you know, that's how we'll design our products. But all of these categories are not ultimately focused on actually curbing emissions as rapidly as possible, let alone, you know, as justly and fairly as possible. What they're really all about is minimizing long-term financial risk to the portfolios, because the interests are ultimately those of the asset owners themselves. So they don't really care if strong investment in Tesla implies 
extremely destructive lithium extraction practices um, somewhere in South America. You know, what matters to them is long-term stable economic growth in the areas of concern for the asset owners themselves. And so stewardship falls down against the, you know, the interests of minimizing financial risk. So ultimately the question isn't, you know, what can we do to stop finance being a risk to the climate? And it becomes, what can we do to minimize climate crisis being a risk to finance. And so I think that's where structurally the stewardship argument ends up falling down because those two things, while some people would argue they're equivalent, I think most of us would recognize that they're ultimately very different things. I want to talk a little bit more about how these these changes, how this shift towards asset manager capitalism changes the relationship between owners and management, so between shareholders and management, because an easy assumption to make would just be that as shareholders, uh, the big asset managers would have the same interests as any other shareholders, that they will generally opt with maybe free ride on the kind of activism of other, other investors or push for bigger payouts. But the relationship is not perhaps as similar to the kind of more um, shareholder activist model that, that this has replaced. And I was wondering if you could talk about why, like specifically, what are the incentives that managers in companies with the big asset managers as significant shareholders, what are the incentives that they face? And what are the incentives that the asset managers themselves face? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, this alliance between shareholders and managers against workers as one of the hallmarks of the shareholder value model. And there, I think that is the element of the shareholder value regime that has very much survived into asset manager capitalism and has potentially even been strengthened. And part of the reason why this alliance has been cemented is that is the success, uh, the historical success of the shareholder value model. We take it as normal that manager compensation, corporate, the, the, the compensation of corporate managers is aligned with shareholder interests. But of course, that was the outcome of a historical process and of the shift from the managerial model to the shareholder value model. Um, this alignment is still in place. And at the same time, unlike uh, in the past, where pension funds were often the main investors in, in, in these large corporations, today, asset managers are these dominant investors. And the corporations in which they invest are also very important customers, of course, of BlackRock, Vanguard, and so on, because these asset managers manage corporate pension plans. So th there is even a more direct symbiosis between these uh, two actors than than in the past. And yeah, the the other element, of course, is the index tracking nature, um, uh, which makes it so that uh, of these uh, large asset managers, which makes it so that they have um, very little interest in pushing individual companies to do uh, in, let's say, intervening in corporate strategy at the level of the individual company, except in cases where there is a basically a, a PR or sales reason for this, as, as is now the case, of course, around highly politicized issues such as 
emissions and uh, and executive compensation. So in those cases, there will be increasingly um, votes against management, also from these large asset managers. But one has to understand these instances as cases where sort of from the asset manager perspective, the uh, sales perspective prevails over the interest in maintaining the peace between the asset management world and the uh, corporate management world. So why in this context don't workers have more power as shareholders, whether that's kind of directly as small shareholders or through their pension funds? There's been talk in the past of this idea of kind of pension fund socialism, where because ownership ended up being so dispersed via pension funds, basically, that actually this would start to undermine the power of investors relative to workers. And yet, if, if anything, the opposites happen. So what has been responsible for that shift? And is there any chance that workers could kind of organize as shareholders rather than as workers to try to um, shift corporate governance in their favor? When Ben was doing his little kind of historical survey there, he mentioned that there was a period where pension funds and institutional investors like pension funds, so, you know, university endowments or foundations, for example, were growing to be really significant direct shareholders, which would have meant that, you know, the trustees of those organizations um, would have been the ones that were directly participating in corporate governance and in shaping the behavior of corporations. But that was sort of rapidly supplanted by the rise of asset manager capitalism and the fact that, you know, asset managers now absolutely dwarf the say that those kinds of investors have. So pension fund socialism was kind of the idea that um, this massive dispersion of shareholding and the fact that, you know, the average pensioner, pension holder was ultimately the owner of those shares and pension fund trustees should be accountable to the beneficiaries of those pensions would have meant that, you know, there was a huge range of increasingly democratic voice and participation in corporate governance through pension holdings. Unfortunately, you know, a number of trends kind of have undermined that as it stands. The first being that, you know, asset managers have massively overtaken pension funds and other institutional investors um, in the size of their shareholdings and therefore their influence. The other is that, you know, a lot of the time pensions are now outsourcing that kind of shareholding to asset managers themselves. So aside from some of the big U.S. pension funds like uh, CalPERS, which is the public employees retirement system in California, they still invest directly. But, you know, a majority of pension funds are now doing so via asset managers, which has meant that there's sort of another break in the democratic chain there between the individuals and uh, between who is actually doing the voting and who that voter is accountable to. Um, so that's sort of the first step in that process. And the other is that over time, you know, there are a lot of trends that contributed to this, um, whether it's sort of, you know, union busting legislation or anything like that. Over time, you know, the distribution of pension fund wealth has become, you know, highly, highly unequal. And that holds in both the US and the UK. So our report has an analysis of that distribution and uh, the figures are, are pretty stark. So even if you were to sort of make the process from the pension beneficiary to the asset manager more democratic, ultimately that still 
you know, democracy for a very small number of people who happen to be wealthy financial asset owners. And so that's hardly, you know, a democratic system. And so that's sort of a two-stage democratic deficit that exists um, in this structure. And the third is that, you know, when it comes to who has a say in corporate governance, workers themselves, labor as a whole has been you know, completely sidelined. So shareholder primacy as a regime really did that in saying that, you know, only shareholders can have the properly aligned set of interests to um, ensure the long-term profitability of a company. And so, you know, workers have the vast majority of the time, no direct say in corporate governance decisions, which isn't to say that they couldn't. Um, (laughs) So I think what's interesting about Commonwealth, um, where I work, we try and think about how we could potentially harness some of the trends and the tools that have emerged from the rise of passive investing or of, you know, asset manager capitalism to benefit uh, workers and, you know, society as a whole rather than just a small group of asset owners. And so one thing that we had proposed a few years ago was something called an inclusive ownership fund, which would basically over time allocate a certain amount of income and voting rights. So basically shares in a company to a trust that is executed on behalf of labor. And that could come in addition to all sorts of things like giving them, you know, direct seats on boards. But basically, it was a mechanism to transfer a certain amount of the massive entitlements that come with shares to workers in companies so that they could exercise that voice. And the other thing that we've sort of started to think about is, you know, something like, and I know, Grace, that you've written on this as well, something like a people's asset manager or a people's kind of tracker fund, you know, because it's so low cost and stable um, to use the tools of index tracking funds, but in a way that tackles the massive inequalities in financial asset wealth in doing so, because only through doing that would you create a more genuinely democratic system. So this would be, you know, using different mechanisms to capitalize basically a fund on behalf of the public. Um, So something like a social wealth fund with, you know, a really clear mission to deliver for workers, to deliver on inequality, to genuinely address the climate crisis and climate injustice rather than just try and minimize financial risk um, and all those kinds of things. So you know, you kind of need to think very boldly in order to get to a place where labor has a genuine stake and a say in in how corporations are run, given how far removed we are from that in our current system. Thank you both so much for joining me on this episode of A Wealth to Win. Ciao.